Hi, I'm Paul Jay. Welcome to theanalysis.news. Be back in just a few seconds to talk about a Canadian election that President Kennedy uh, more or less interfered with. Then that's sort of a mild way of putting it. Uh, don't forget the donate button, subscribe button, share button, all the buttons. By the 1960s, U.S. investment in Canada had far outstripped British investment, and the U.S. was by far the dominating external power at any rate. But it hadn't fully worked its way through the political structure, this economic might. Prime Minister Diefenbaker got into quite a fight with President Kennedy over a few issues, uh, one of the, certainly the most important was the role of nuclear weapons would play in the Canadian military. Well, in the 1962 election, President Kennedy directly and successfully made sure Stephen Baker wasn't re-elected. I think it's one of the more important stories in Canadian history, modern Canadian history. Uh, it, it's, it's really about a, a transition to American dominance uh, that doesn't get talked about very much. I first heard it when I was producing this television show I used to executive produce with my partner, Ron Haggard, who was a very famous Canadian journalist. And he told me this 1962 election was essentially run out of the basement of the U.S. Embassy. And this is the election that elected Lester Pearson. So I've always been curious about this story. And my guest today has now written uh, a book about it, and I think it's very important, as I say, a piece of history. So without further ado, uh, I'm going to introduce John Boyko. So John Boyko has written eight books addressing history and politics, including a national bestseller, Blood and Daring, How Canada Fought the American Civil War and Forged the Nation. That was shortlisted for a Governor General's Award. And Cold Fire, Kennedy's Northern Front, that was shortlisted for the Defoe Prize. Boyko is an op-ed contributor to the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, Maclean's, and more. He writes for the Canadian Encyclopedia. His latest book is The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War. Thanks very much for joining me, John. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So well, we're going to talk about your book about Kennedy and Diefenbaker. So, so when, do, when does this uh, dispute, a fight, take place, uh, be begin between Diefenbaker and Kennedy? Uh, Kennedy certainly didn't like Diefenbaker uh, on a personal level, but it became more serious than that. So, so start from the beginning of, of how this story unfolds. Well, it began when Diefenbaker visited John Kennedy in the White House in 1961, just shortly after the election. Um, in February of 1961, Diefenbaker was in the Oval Office, and they were having a long discussion, him and Kennedy, about a number of issues that were affecting Canadian-American relations at the time. Uh, Canada's involvement in the Vietnam War and Canada's involvement in the increasingly integrated Canadian-American economy that you mentioned. And another issue was NORAD, the North American Air Defense, and NATO that linked Canada and the United States to Britain and Europe and the degree to which Canada would contribute toward that continental defense and the defense in Europe against the Soviet Union. This is in the middle. Well, why, do, why, do we, why do we dig into the Vietnam War story? And let it, because 
you know, maybe in some ways a country that's closest to Canada in terms of its role and relationship to the United States was Australia. And Australia sent troops to Vietnam and Canada didn't, and on the face of it at least, seemed to be distancing itself to some extent. Uh, so what's the story there? Well, my book called The Devil's Trick, How Canada Fought the Vietnam War, is precisely about that. And I won't go into long detail because I wrote an entire book about it, but I will tell you that in 1954, when the great powers met in Geneva in order to, to try to get France out of Vietnam and allow the Vietnamese people to take over the government of their own country, Canada was asked to be part of something called the International Control Commission, the ICC. And while Poland represented the communist world, India, the non-aligned world, Canada was asked to represent the Western world. So Canada was there in 1954 with over 300 diplomats and soldiers trying to oversee a peace that really did not exist. Our diplomats were there right until the end of 1973, in fact, until 1975 when the communists finally took over. We were also involved in the Vietnam War because we sent over 20,000 Canadians who signed up for the American military and served. Over 170 died and are on the Vietnam Memorial in Washington, D.C. We were also intricately involved in supplying weaponry to the Pentagon for use in the Vietnam War. About $370 million a year, which today would be equivalent of about $2 billion a year. So a, a large contribution of weaponry. So we Those Canadians that went to uh, Vietnam... Why wasn't that illegal? They prosecuted Canadians or at least threatened to prosecute Canadians that went to Spain to, to fight against fascism. Right. And that that act, that law that was passed to try to stop the Canadians was still in effect. And yet the Liberal government at the time, the first the Pearson Conservative government and then Pearson's government, the Liberal government, said that they would not enforce it. So so Diefenbaker cooperated to that extent with Vietnam. but And then the, Canada's role on the International Control Commission, to, to what extent did Diefenbaker sort of defy Kennedy by not sending troops to Vietnam? Or did the Americans think the Canada spying for them, which I, I, my understanding did quite a bit of while they were on the International Control Commission. Maybe that was more important than sending troops. Uh, Canada did um, reports to the Americans. There was a gentleman who was a diplomat named Blair Seaborn who actually worked as an intermediary with President Johnson, sent him to meet with the North Vietnamese to try to negotiate a peace, which if Johnson had taken Blair Seaborn's advice, would have ended the Vietnam War in 1964 before the massive ex escalation in 1965. So we were very much there and Kennedy knew that. And one of the things that Kennedy was doing when he met with Diefenbaker in February of 1961 was to push for more foreign assistance for South Vietnam, direct involvement of, of Canadian troops. Diefenbaker was able to say that because the ICC was there and we were a part of it, we had to remain neutral and could not send troops. That was exactly the same thing that Pearson said when Johnson advocated for sending troops to Vietnam. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, in, during, it's during the time Diefenbaker is prime minister that there's a, an estimation that if there had been a fair election in Vietnam, uh, Ho Chi Minh would have won that election. 
Absolutely. And in fact, that came even before Diefenbaker when Louis Saint Laurent was prime minister. Again, uh, the gentleman who was sent, uh, the, the Brigadier General Lett was sent, Sherwood Lett was sent to run the Canadian portion of the ICC. He reported to Pearson, uh, who was the external affairs minister at the time, and the prime minister who reported to President Eisenhower, that if the election that was planned for July 1956 happened, Ho Chi Minh and the communists would have won in a walk, not because he was overwhelmingly popular in the north, which was true and everybody knew it, he was overwhelmingly popular in the south too. And Lett said, the Brigadier, Canadian Brigadier General, that election should happen anyway, because if it is stopped, then there will be a long and bloody war that the um, north, the communists, will eventually win. And he, he took no satisfaction in being right. So this begins, I guess, the real dispute with Diefenbaker and Kennedy. And then, and then there's a dispute over Canada's relationship to Cuba. Well, Canada's relationship with Cuba had, had long been different than the relationship with the United States. The United States was in Cuba for, for a number of, of reasons and it involved a lot of uh, mafia money into the casinos and into the and into the economy. The Canadians were in Cuba years before as well, and with respect to banking interests. So we had interests in Cuba long before uh, Fidel Castro took over in 1959, as did the Americans. So Kennedy was not very pleased uh, about Canada's consistence or determination to continue a trading relationship with Cuba when Kennedy was calling for sanctions. That's exactly right. Uh, Canada eventually withdrew, uh, that is the Canadian banks eventually withdrew a lot of their investment, but the Canadian investment remained in Cuba. And this would become even more of a flashpoint when Pierre Trudeau began uh, relationships with uh, Cuba with Fidel Castro and actually went down and visited Castro. But at the time, yes, even before the Cuban Missile Crisis, it was a point of contention. Just a quick note, Trudeau often gets credit for this relationship with Cuba, but it really was Diefenbaker, wasn't it? It was Diefenbaker that allowed it to continue after uh, the 1959 Cuban Revolution. Right. Okay, continue the story of how things unfold with Diefenbaker and Kennedy. Well, you mentioned about the person, there, there's all of the political differences and the policy disagreements, and that is true. But there was also a personal dislike between the two men. Diefenbaker, who came from a farm background and a poverty-ridden background and, and picked himself up by his bootstraps, became a very successful lawyer and, and eventually the, held the highest office in the land, hated people of the elite. The educated elite, he thought, were the worst kind of people who looked out only for themselves. And what was Kennedy but a, a walking, talking representation of the elite that Diefenbaker had railed against throughout his entire professional and political life. Kennedy loved people who would challenge him intellectually, but also people who would not vehemently disagree with him, especially somebody like the Prime Minister of Canada, who he believed should simply take his orders from the White House. So they ended up despising each other. Even on a person, if I can just tell a little story, very short, um, there was a, a great fish that uh, that Kennedy had caught off uh, the coast of Bermuda and in his holiday, 
And, and he took Diefenbaker out to see it. And he said, I bet you've never caught anything that large. And Diefenbaker said, well, as a matter of fact, I caught something even bigger. And so the two of them were even on a mano-to-mano argument about fishing. After he left, after Diefenbaker left, John Kennedy turned to his brother, Robert Kennedy, who was the attorney general, and said, never leave me alone in the room with that boring son of a bitch again. So they disliked each other personally, as well as all of their policy disagreements. So we're getting into the period of, uh, into 1959, 1960, Kennedy's elected. It's, it's, the height of the Cold War in many ways. Uh, there's all kinds of claims about there's a missile gap, that the Soviet Union has more ICBMs than the United States does, which turns out to be a BS. Uh, but they're playing it up like hell in the United States. Uh, and uh, there's uh, great tensions over Berlin. Uh, so in, in that context of, of you know, many people being very concerned about the possibility of nuclear war, uh, this starts to become the bone of contention between Diefenbaker and Kennedy and, and starts really is the issue to, I think, uh, if I understand it correctly, where this th- transition really takes place uh, from power to Diefenbaker to Pearson to a government that's willing to buck the United States on some critical issues to one that doesn't. So take us through that. That's right. One of the issues that Kennedy discussed with Diefenbaker in Washington, and then Kennedy came to Ottawa for three days in May of 1961. And the issue that was the most important issue that they discussed then was that Diefenbaker had purchased Bowmark missiles. Bowmark stood for, Bow was short for Boeing, and Mark for the uh, Michigan Aeronautic uh, Research um, Center. So it's boom, American-made missiles. And they would be stationed, 56 of them were purchased, and they were put in North Bay, Ontario, and in a, a small um, Air Force base about two hours north of Montreal. And what would happen with these missiles is when Soviet uh planes came over, bombers came over on their way to the United States to turn New York and Washington into Hiroshima and Nagasaki, these nuclear-tipped missiles would be fired at the planes. All they needed to do was to get close. Their nuclear missiles would explode, which would cause the nuclear weapons on the Soviet planes to explode, and therefore the United States would be saved. Okay, just one sec. The, the original Bomark missile purchase are not nuclear, right? That's what the fight's about. Right. The, the original notion was that these would not need nuclear warheads to be effective, but then it became clear that they would need nuclear weapons to uh, warheads to be clear. Diefenbaker said uh, to Kennedy, both in Washington and then again in uh, in Ottawa and through many of the communications, not just between the two men, but but uh, between their, their cabinet ministers and secretaries, that Diefenbaker did not want these missiles to have nuclear weapons. He didn't want them to be uh, have nuclear weapons because that would mean there'd be nuclear weapons stationed in Canada. And he saw it as hypocrisy that Canada was supporting nuclear missiles should be gotten rid of throughout the world and yet we were accepting them on on Canadian soil. He also did not trust Kennedy because he did not want the Americans and from the Situation Room in the White House to be able to fire nuclear weapons into Canadian airspace that would end up with a nuclear 
war taking place over Canadian soil with all of the nuclear fallout landing basically on southern Ontario and southern Quebec. He did not want that to happen without the guarantee that the Canadian government would have the final sign-off on the use of those nuclear weapons. Kennedy could not give him those guarantees. So therefore, Diefenbaker said, I will not allow nuclear weapons to be put in Canadian soil. Let me add something to the story that I, uh, 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 that I found out in the course of doing this documentary with Dan Ellsberg. Um, there's a piece to this story, which I don't know that anybody knows because I interviewed uh, Lester Ernst, Ernest, and uh, he worked on the SAGE radar system in 5960, which was actually the system that was going to direct the Bomark missiles. And if you want in the movie, Dr. Strangelove and, and, and other places, there's this big board and they can supposedly track all the various planes coming and going, the Soviet bombers coming in. Uh, Ernest told me, and, and I saw this verified later in a study that McNamara uh, re uh, requisitioned, but the, the whole SAGE radar system never worked because, because they hadn't solved the problem of radar jamming. But they didn't tell anybody because they got a trillion dollars of expenditure. MIT and the various private contractors spent about a trillion dollars developing a SAGE radar system, a Bomark missile system, so that when the computers could tell the Bomark missiles, okay, time to fire, the whole thing was a crock. And by the time Kennedy gets into this fight with Diefenbaker, Kennedy knows that. But he still wants nuclear weapons. And I think it's in your book, but it came out later that the real reason Kennedy wanted weapons in Canada was because they would furnish another target for Soviet bombers and it would distract the bombers so they could bomb Canada. That is precisely it. And as a matter of fact, that was leaked during the election campaign in 1963, um, when Pearson was the liberal, was saying we need to send put nuclear weapons on these uh, weapons, the Bomark missiles, because they are essential to Canadian defense and American continental defense. And Diefenbaker was continuing to say, no, these are not necessary to, and we will not put nuclear weapons in Canada. The Pentagon released uh, documents that had been kept secret when um, in 1963 the Foreign Relations Committee had uh, interviewed Dean Rusk. Dean Rusk um, was the Secretary of State at the time and and a uh, senator asked him directly about the use of the Bomark missiles and Rusk let slip in a political gaffe. Yes, the only thing they are there for is to draw Soviet fire so that the Soviets will fire on them on Canadian soil and we will then have more time to respond before they get to the United States. I call it a political gaffe because you know a political gaffe is when you tell a truth that you were not supposed to tell. It's not, not a mistake, <laughs> yeah, exactly. it's just you're not supposed to. And Kennedy exploded, one, for Rusk saying that, and two, that had been released. And it was released in the middle of the campaign. And Diefenbaker, of course, went on stump speech after stump speech saying, see, I told you. But by that time, it was too late. And, and Pearson was already winning the election. Now, there was another issue of dispute, too, uh, which I learned from your book. I knew, I knew, I knew a bit about the Bogomark missiles, but I didn't know about this part, which is about... Uh, Americans, Kennedy wanted Canadian troops in Europe to have nuclear weapons. 
and and the the fight broke out over that as well. That's right. And that became the, the same bone of contention, and Diefenbaker was using exactly the same argument. What they wanted was they would be the nuclear American-made, American-owned nuclear weapons would be stationed in Europe, and they would be stationed with the Canadian troops that were there. If the Soviets ever breached the line and began to attack first probably in Berlin and then the rest of Western Europe, then the Canadian forces could access those American-owned weapons in order to, to repel that Soviet attack. Again, Diefenbaker said the same arguments, I won't repeat them, but I do not trust you. I don't trust that you will confirm that we, the Canadian government, gets the final say on whether our troops can use nuclear weapons. And I think from... A uh, Canadian point of view, working from a Canadian who is worried about the sovereignty of his own country, one can understand Diefenbaker's point of view. From the well, American point of view, you can understand Kennedy's point of view. He needed an ally who would do his bidding and would have all of the weaponry that would be necessary to put up the staunchest defense that, that could be raised against the Soviet attack, either in North America or uh, Europe. So I understand both points of view. Well, well, the, well that, that's not quite the American point of view, because what I, what I learned from Ellsberg is that the American nuclear war plan actually was that if a conventional fight broke out and there was any sense that the Russians were making headway, it would trigger a full-scale nuclear attack on the Soviet Union, full-scale, which would have meant the wiping out of Europe. Because the, while, while the Soviet Union didn't have very many ICBMs to fire at the United States, they had lots of mid-range ballistic missiles, nuclear. So these Canadian troops wouldn't have been around very long. The, the idea that it meant anything militarily was a joke. They all would have been dead. Exactly, as would the American troops who were there and the Brits and the French and the rest of them. And all, and all the populations of those countries. Given the civilians. Um, and that came from Eisenhower. That was a holdover from the, that was the Eisenhower um, defense policy. That he had exactly. lived through the Second World War. He did not want to see another Second World War. So therefore, there would be a massive retaliation with everything they had if the Soviet Union breached that line. And the, and uh, as not just the wiping out of Europe, but the other thing I learned from Ellsberg is that they were also going to wipe out China, even though China was not going to be involved in it. They wouldn't let China be the last man standing. So they were going to wipe everybody out. That's exactly right. Yeah. I, and I, I, wrote, All right, that, so I wrote that in my book, Cold Fire. And I had um, my editor say, um, that was one of the few things that my editor said, is that actually true? <laughs> and I went back and checked because I did a lot of research at the Boston in Boston at the Kennedy Library. I went back to my sources and I, I actually photocopied sources and sent it to him and, and he couldn't believe that that was actually true because it's Dr. Strangelove times a thousand. This, this is insanity. And yet that was the American policy. Well, that's what Ellsberg says that when he came out of seeing Dr. Strangelove, he turned to his friend and said, that's a documentary. And the reason the reason it was so accurate is that they had an Ellsberg type from Britain that had worked on the British nuclear program advising the filmmakers. So it actually it's it's dark and funny as hell, but the spine of it is quite realistic. So and if you listen to you can now go on to the Kennedy Library site and listen, as I did 
to the tapes that were made, because Nixon wasn't the first president to have tapes. Kennedy had tapes in the cabinet room while the Cuban Missile Crisis was going on. And the generals, especially Curtis LeMay, the Air Force um, general, was advising Kennedy. And if you listen to Curtis LeMay talk during the Cuban Missile Crisis for those 13 days, you can't help but hear George C. Scott voice from Dr. Strangelove that the two are so close in the way they looked at the world and the advice that they were giving the president. Yeah, LeMay was not just in, uh, urging an invasion of Cuba at that time. He was also urging a stri first strike against the Soviet Union. This is the opportunity we need to get the Soviet Union like we should have got them after the Second World War. And Kennedy was sitting there listening to that advice. A different president may have taken that advice. And who knows what would have spun out of control after Cuba. Well, that's partly because the, the lie of the missile gap that the Soviets had a thousand ICBMs when in fact they had four. Uh, and, and that was the opportunity to hit because they figured if they wiped out the Soviet Union then they couldn't fire back. They only had four ICBMs, which is certainly one of the motivating factors for Khrushchev uh, to put missiles in Cuba. But that said, even if they were right, it was a good time, quote unquote, to hit the Soviet Union. Like I said, it would have been the end of Europe. But LeMay didn't seem too concerned about that. Well, it could have been the end of the planet because the Soviet Union would have responded. There's no doubt it would have been the end of the planet because now we know a nuclear winner, even if the Soviet Union couldn't hit the United States, the fires that would have burnt in the Soviet Union and Europe would have been enough to create a nuclear winter that within a year would have wiped out pretty much most humans on Earth. Okay, so Diefenbaker, even though he's not really a, a peacenik by any means, he's, a, he's very much a cold warrior himself. He's not even really against nuclear weapons, but he is against handing over control of nuclear Canadian, what would be sort of Canadian nuclear weapons. So he, but Kennedy doesn't like even the whiff of defiance, even though in substance, Diefenbaker's refusal to do what Kennedy wants wouldn't have changed the military situation in IOTA. That said, Kennedy wants Diefenbaker gone. So, so what happens? Well, Kennedy just did a number of things in January of 1964, not 1963, sorry, that were going to result in the fall of the Diefenbaker government. Um, he invited Pearson, for example. Well, even before that, he did a number of things to sort of undermine um, Diefenbaker. And the, Canadian, the American ambassador in Ottawa was, was intricately involved, as you hinted at before, at feeding anti-Diefenbaker stories to Canadian press that were then out in the newspapers. And I, I read accounts of where some of Kennedy's men, a, a guy named Ball, for example, would take great delight in inventing negative stories about Diefenbaker or twisting a story so it put Diefenbaker in a bad light, sending to Ottawa and reading it two days later in Canadian newspapers. They took great delight in that. Kennedy knew exactly what was going on, and Kennedy was briefed often on this this undermining of the Canadian government. Um, in, in June of 1962, the Canadian election was going on, and Diefenbaker um, was really upset about the fact that Pearson, the liberal leader running against Diefenbaker, was brought to the White House for a meeting of all of the Nobel laureates. Pearson had won the Nobel Prize in 1956 for his, his role in the Suez Crisis. 
And just just let me just quickly say a lot of people think one of the reasons he won that is because he was actually assisting the Americans in the Suez crisis. He, he actually was assisting the Americans. He was taking their, their ideas forward. And so when Pearson arrived, didn't he go upstairs into the private chambers of Kennedy, spend an hour there where all of the other laureates were downstairs waiting for their dinner to begin? And then the two of them descended the stairs and he introduced Pearson all around the room and, of course, made sure that that was front page news in all of the Canadian papers. So just for Ameri for people to get the point of this, Pearson's leader of the opposition. He's not the prime minister. You're not supposed to deal treat the leader of the opposition. But they use this Nobel thing as an excuse to give prominence to Pearson. I'm just quoting. I'm just quoting you, your book. You're not supposed to do that at any time, but you were supposed, to, especially not supposed to do it in the middle of an election campaign. And Kennedy knew damn well that the election campaign was going on. Something else that Kennedy did is there was a, a pollster <clears throat> and political advisor named Lou Harris that really helped Kennedy to get elected, and and the Liberal Party contacted Lou Harris and wanted him to come up and help the Liberal Party. Harris went to, Pier went to Kennedy and Kennedy said, yes, go, made some suggestions, and up went Harris under an assumed name with a fake passport and met not in, in near the House of Commons offices, but, but in, a, in a secret location in Ottawa, and made advice to Pearson as to how to run the election Okay, let me let me just I just want to emphasize something you just said because the people don't think there's conspiracies. This is a conspiracy. You give Lou Harris a phony name, and it has to be uh, approved by the White House to give him a fake passport. There's no other way to get it in those circumstances. And so, and then he sends him up there to get directly interfere in the Canadian elections. Uh, this, so I, I just wanted to reinforce what you just said. Lou Harris hired 500 women who ran phone lines um, and, and did polling every day, polling across the country. And what Lou Harris did for this polling information is he advised Pearson on where to go, what to say, what points to hit, which points to ignore, even to get rid of his bow tie and put on a long tie. Um, and he advised him throughout the campaign. Lou Harris was then feeding information directly back to Kennedy, who said he wanted to be briefed on the Canadian election on a daily basis. He knew exactly what was happening. Well, it didn't quite work out the way Kennedy wanted, because while Diefenbaker um, lost a number of seats, he still had a minority government. And so it worked that it increased the liberal power and decreased conservative power, but Diefenbaker was still government. But Kennedy wasn't done yet, because he was now about to overthrow the Canadian government, not just help one to get elected. Now, this is after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and we could talk about that if you want. But in January of 1963, the leader of the, the commander of all NATO forces, a guy named uh, General Norstad, um, visited Ottawa. He was retiring, and he was sort of doing a victory lap of all the NATO countries. And when he arrived in Ottawa, he did a press conference at which he said everything that the Canadian Prime Minister is saying to the Canadian people about Beaumark missiles, about nuclear warheads, about Canadian defense is a lie. And he 
called the Diefenbaker government a fake government, almost Trumpian, <laughs> in the way that they are, are, are talking about the relationship with NATO, with NORAD, with the United States. Diefenbaker responded with a speech saying basically, no, you're the liar, and, and defended his policies with the United States. The State Department then devised a memo that Kennedy signed off on. And the State Department released a long, detailed memo that went through point by point through Diefenbaker's speech, House of Commons speech, and said, this is untrue, this is untrue, this is untrue, basically calling Diefenbaker a liar for the second time. At that point, this led to great divisions in, in the conservative cabinet. And one of, one of the cabinet ministers, very important cabinet minister, Harkness, the Secretary of Defense, quit and it ends up that the government fell, first time since 1944, they lost a non-confidence vote, and then we are into an election. Doesn't um, Lou Harris come up again to, to help with the Canadian election, to help the Liberals? Doesn't Ambassador Butterworth, the American ambassador in, in Ottawa, again feed misinformation and, and anti-Diefenbaker um, um, notions to the Canadian press that get reprinted? Um, ben Bradley, later famous of uh, Watergate fame um, with the Washington Post, was the editor of... Uh, managing editor of the Post. Right. And he was, at that point, um, a senior editor with Newsweek magazine and a good friend with John Kennedy. He and Kennedy met in the Oval Office. Two days later, there was a horrific cover story of Diefenbaker with a terrible picture of him and a, a long article in there which got published in Newsweek in the Canadian version so all the Canadians are reading this thing that is just slamming Diefenbaker and calling him um, horrible things and an unintellectual man insulting him um, in every way personally and professionally and politically and at that point Ben Bradley came back and showed the magazine to Kennedy in the White House and Kennedy said that is Great. I love this. This is good. So Kennedy is behind it all the way. At one point, Pearson is delivering a speech. He gets off the stage and all kinds of people during the speech are yelling to him that he is pro-American. And, and he is starting to wear this pro-American um, because uh, image. And there was a phone call waiting for him from Kennedy uh, backstage. And Pearson said, I refuse to take the call tell the president to lay off. This is becoming too obvious. <laughs> well, because it was obvious. It's just starting to look more. Now, the hypocrisy of Pearson is beyond belief because Pearson had, had been taking an anti-nuclear position until Kennedy says, okay, come on board. Right. And at, during the campaign, in fact, in January, he made a, uh, Pearson made a long speech in which he said he had changed his mind, that he is now pro-nuclear weapons, not pro-nuclear weapons, nobody's pro-nuclear weapons, but pro-nuclear weapons being stationed with Canadian troops in, uh, in Europe and with the Beaumark missiles. And he therefore had changed his mind. Well, that was all Kennedy needed to hear to put all of this into action. We now have to not just get rid of Diefenbaker. We need this man as prime minister. Well, it's hard to believe there wasn't some kind of actual meeting with Pearson where they, they helped him change his mind. I mean, they knew Pearson, not just from the Suez crisis, 
But I, I have a memory, vague memory. Didn't didn't Pearson work for the Rockefellers at some point? Uh, I think that was Mackenzie King who worked for the Rockefellers. That was William Lloyd Mackenzie King. Okay, I'm sorry. I thought there was a Pearson connection there too. Maybe not. Anyway, they certainly knew Pearson and and were in direct contact with him during this. Oh, period. they, so they knew had... Pearson well. Um, Kennedy had reviewed um, one of Pearson's book with a glowing review. He spoke glowingly of Pearson um, for years before Pearson was was even prime minister when he was external affairs minister. He took great comfort in knowing that there was somebody who had such gravitas in Canada because he was now a world figure because of what he had done for the Suez crisis. He had great respect um, on Oxford educated Pearson. So the Harvard educated uh, Kennedy, um, they, they spoke the same language like Diefenbaker and Kennedy never could. I wonder how long they'd been grooming him. <laughs> Um, is there evidence of, of the role, hand of the CIA during this period? They usually are involved in regime change policies. Um, there is no evidence that I saw of the CIA being involved. That doesn't mean that there's no evidence of the, no CIA involvement. But all of my uh, the, the time that I spent at the Kennedy Library um, researching this, I saw no CIA involvement. There would have been awareness, obviously, because this was discussed at the cabinet table. Um, with Kennedy's cabinet. So there was awareness, but whether there was direct involvement, I don't know. But the CIA, like you say, was quite adept at overthrowing governments that, uh, that uh, the regime in, in Washington didn't like. So that Canada was now having its government overthrown and, uh, and a one put in that, that the president wanted would have been no news to the CIA, it would have just been one more. I mean, it, was, it wasn't troops on the border, but it's interesting how uh, self-righteous and outraged the Americans get about uh, Russia and Ukraine. And this is more or less the same situation. They wanted this out-and-out pro-American government in Canada, and they made it happen. Exactly. The uh, Canadian media... Uh, on the whole, was wound up being quite pro-American on this. Is that right? Uh, they... Well, there's a number of reasons that I found when I was doing my research. And one of the things that um, the Americans uh, were very good at was to selling Kennedy as it was before the Beatles, but he was like the Beatles. He was like the rock star. Um, he, had the, he had the looks, he had the name, he had the smile, the charisma, the beautiful wife. He had all of that. And we had John Diefenbaker. So when, when John Diefenbaker is put up against John Kennedy, many American uh, journalists just fell into line with the, the Kennedy mystique and charisma. And so did Canadian journalists. The Canadian journalists were looking at Diefenbaker as in in a way that was almost pro-Pearson to begin with. But then there was a rumor and a leak that came out that while Kennedy was in Ottawa, he had a position paper in his hand and that are written by one of his aides, a guy named Rostow, um, that said, there are six things that we want you to push the Canadians to do. Join the Organization of American State, more uh, the nuclear weapons, uh, a number of things. Hey, 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 hang on. That's a big one. I remember this now. I'm sorry, I should have picked up on it. You go, this is really interesting uh, thing I learned from your book. The, uh, this OAS thing became a real fight. Absolutely. Kennedy wanted uh, the Canada to join the OAS, the Organization of American States. They, all of all the states of the Western Hemisphere joining together as, as a 
not military per chance, but it basically was a military, but uh, an economic alliance. And Kennedy wanted one more English-speaking Western voice down there with all of these Spanish-speaking people, many of whom were still looking at the Soviet Union, not yet China, but Soviet Union, and thinking maybe they have some support that we could use. And so he wanted Canada's voice on that council. And Diefenbaker said no, because one, because he would know that he would end up within a fight between Cuba and the United States, and he didn't want to put himself into that position. He knew that he could not simply toe the line for the Americans and therefore would not join the OAS. Yeah, that, that was really interesting because he, he also just learning from your book, he was arguing that Canada would have a much better position even vis-a-vis -vis trade with Latin America if Canada had its own direct relationship, that, that in OAS, Canada would inevitably become a, a second banana to the Americans. Right, which is exactly what Kennedy wanted. And again, Diefenbaker said no to protect Canadian sovereignty and our ability to maneuver, then we needed to stay out of the OAS. And that was only one of the six things that was on this, this talking page that, that uh, he was to, and the word was push, push the, the Canadians to do this, push the Canadians to do that, push the Canadians. And what happened was Kennedy, no doubt, inadvertently dropped the paper or left it behind. So when Kennedy left and the, you know, Diefenbaker waved him goodbye, went back to his office, there was this piece of paper there, picked it up. And it, there it was, push the Canadians to do this, push them to do that. And Diefenbaker, read it and with a blue pen underlined the word push each time, almost ripping through the paper. You could just see the anger. I saw this piece of paper in the Kennedy, in the Diefenbaker papers in Saskatoon in, during my research, and there it was. Well, during the campaign, Peter Truman, a Canadian uh, journalist, um, released the leaked, didn't release the leaked document, but the news that on the border, Deep, uh, uh, Kennedy had written S-O-B beside Diefenbaker's <laughs> name. So here is, this goes back to Kennedy as rock star. So many Canadians enamored with the charisma and, and movie star, rock star of John Kennedy thinks our prime minister is a son of a bitch. And there it was out there. Now, now the, it's the, the owners of the newspapers who are in the upper echelons of Canadian elites are part of what is now the majority section of the Canadian elites that totally want to ride an American gravy chain. And they don't want to piss Kennedy off. So, so it's not just the journalists that get enamored with Kennedy's personality, which they did. And he certainly had an enamoring personality. But 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 the elites themselves, they wanted an end to this defiance uh, by Diefenbaker. They wanted a pro-American prime minister. Right, and and you're talking about that elite, but also the business elite as well. Um, were, well that's you, what I'm talking about. Yeah, you're yeah. talking about the business elite. Yeah, I thought you were talking about the media elite. Um, yeah, well, and I'm talking kind about of this kind of kind of the same. Well, Go there on. you go, and the Canadian voters. So now you've got this this coalition of Canadians who say we really respect what John Kennedy says. John Kennedy thinks my prime minister is a liar and personally thinks he's a son of a bitch. And so that came out two days before Canadians went to the polls. And now if 
Ben, Sorry, Brad ben Bradley, by the way, met with Kennedy and said, did you write SOB on that, on that memo? And Kennedy said, no, I didn't know he was a son of a bitch at that time. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I was a kid, uh, I don't, I guess I'm about 11 or something or 12. Uh, I guess it's the 1962 or 63 election. I go to Maple Leaf Gardens. My parents take me there to hear Tommy Douglas, the head of the CCF, speak to a state. Uh, Maple Leaf Gardens was packed, which means like about 20,000, 20,000 people. And, and, and the theme of the speech is no Bullmark missiles. And there was a lot of public opinion against Bullmark missiles. But it's kind of ironic, I think, if, and, and you tell me if I have the numbers right. But if, if Douglas hadn't weakened the anti-Bullmark vote vis-a-vis Diefenbaker, maybe Pearson wouldn't have won. In some ways, CCF and Douglas gave Pearson the victory. And, it's not, and they've played that role the other way a few times, too, giving the... Cons- yeah, that, that, is, that is absolutely true. And um, there was also some other small political parties were there. And now we are to the reality of Canadian politics, because um, if, if we only had two, two parties like the Americans, a number of Canadian elections would be different because the vote splitting would not happen. The strategic voting wouldn't happen. And that election of 1963 was one of them in which, yeah, Tommy Douglas siphoned a lot of votes away, the anti-Bomark, anti-nuclear votes that would have gone to Diefenbaker. Okay, so Diefenbaker is overthrown. I, I don't know if we can call it a coup, but it's it's not too far from a coup. I think in the headline, I'll call it's it. It's as close as we can come to a coup without being a coup. Without Kennedy's American coup tanks again. in the street, it's as close as we can come to a coup. All right, Pearson becomes prime minister. Now on that list of things to push Canada, that Diefenbaker, if I remember correctly from the book, said no to all of them, uh, did did Pearson then say yes? Pearson said yes to the most important ones. The most important one was that that he allowed the nuclear weapons to come into Canada and to be placed with the Bomark missiles. He allowed the nuclear weapons to go to Europe. He allowed that to happen. There were some other minor things, but that is the major thing. With respect to the OAS, no, Pearson for the same reason as Stephen Baker would not join the OAS. Um, for the same reason as Stephen Baker, he wouldn't cut off uh, relationships with Cuba. For the same reason as Stephen Baker, he would not commit troops to Vietnam. He continued to allow, just like Stephen Baker had, the massive uh, amount of military materiel to be purchased by the Americans sent to Vietnam, but no direct Canadian troops in Vietnam, like Australian. But it's during during Pearson's years, but also Trudeau, when Canada really gets more actively spying on behalf of the U.S. on the ICC. Yeah, the ICC was doing things, and and again in in not so much cold fire, but in the book um, The Devil's Trick. I've gone to fought the Vietnam War. I go into the amount of spying that was done. And uh, there was some ICC, International Control Commission officers, diplomats that were there that spoke and said later, that spoke and said, the things that we were asked to do on behalf of the Americans, I am ashamed of. So, for, for example, there was at one point where there was going to be a massive influx of, this is before the big American, uh, when Kennedy was still 
president before the big influx of Americans in 1965. There were going to be 1,500 new advisors put in, and there was going to be a massive amount of, of helicopters and armored vehicles placed in. And the ICC's job was to say, no, that is not allowed. So what the Canadian ICC coordinator said to the, to the uh, Americans was, could you please space that out over two months so that it doesn't arrive all at the same time? So were the Canadians in there doing the Americans bidding? Absolutely. All right, just to close the loop on this, when did Canada join the OAS? Uh, Brian Mulroney's government um, joined the OAS in the 1980s. So it was a long time after all of this. A government that was even, a government and person even more subservient to the Americans than Pearson. <laughs> yeah, so Ronald Reagan asked, asked uh, that Canada join the OAS and Brian Mulroney said yes. I think Mulroney would have said yes to just about anything. <laughs> that's another book. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's the next one. All right, listen, this is really interesting. Uh, and and we'll, we'll do the Vietnam one. You tell me when you're ready. But thanks very much for, for joining us. Thanks so much. I'm happy to speak with you again anytime. I've enjoyed this. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news. Please don't forget to donate, to subscribe, to share. Uh, and uh, I just want to reinforce in terms of the, the interview we just completed, uh, the subservience of Canadian foreign policy, Canadian military policy, uh, NATO, uh, it, it continues in spades today. So this uh, Kennedy's coup against Canada really s set the tone for where we're living now. Uh, thanks again, John. Thank you very much. Pleasure. And thank you for joining us on the analysis.news.